Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. They will say to you, the donkeys, that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hands finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He has told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, these days, what a lot of people are probably thinking, what's on a lot of people's minds, are maybe, maybe one of those things is about leadership. It's about leading, whether it's leading the home or leading the community leading the nation, maybe even leading the world. When we don't lead well, bad things tend to happen, and bad things we see invariably happen. Uh, When we don't lead well, even though we thought things were strong, we see weaknesses pop out. 
when we see weak leaders, we see weak nations. And when we see weak nations, we see chaos and war and strife ensue. And this passage is about leadership, but it is about more than that. And so I have four points for you this morning, and it is on divine providence, divine assurance, divine equipping, and even divine concealment. So it's providence, assurance, equipping, and concealment, but it's all under the umbrella of divine providence. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 9 actually provides us with a backdrop of what we're going to read here. So if you do have your Bibles, please keep it open because, like I said before, as we're going through the book of 1 Samuel, there are so many things that we want to go over, and I don't want to miss any of it. And so in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, we're given this backdrop. And the backdrop is introducing Saul, who will be later crowned king. And if you grew up in the church, Saul is in the very least a complicated character. He's a conflicted character. But this is when he is introduced. And so verses 1 and 2 will give us a very, very important backdrop. It'll give us some important details about Saul. Saul in the Hebrew is Shaul, which means asked for. It literally means asked for. So Saul is, well, you asked for it. That's what his name means. And that's exactly how we start in chapter 9, because in chapter 8, guess what they were asking for? They were asking for a king. They said, give us a king so we could be like the other nations. And so Saul comes into the picture, and his name happens to be Shaul, which is asked for. Who is Saul, though? He was the son of Kish. And it says that Kish was a man of great wealth. Now, that's somewhat of an understatement if you read the Hebrew. The Hebrew term, Gibor Chayil, means great man of power. That's what it literally means. He, so Kish was a great man of power, which is translated here as a man of great wealth. And to attest to that, there is this long genealogy that is testifying to the importance of this man named Kish in the tribe of Benjamin. And so we see Kish is introduced, and then we see Saul would be the inheritor of this great power and wealth. So that's how it starts in verse 1. In verse 2, he says that Saul was handsome. Now, whenever the Bible mentions that a man is handsome, I take a step back. Not because, you know, I'm a, I'm a man too. I'm pretty sure. But no, I'm very sure. Although some people are confused about what is a man and woman. But I'm not. Anyway, but um, we see that he is handsome. So whenever the Bible mentions a man being handsome, that I tend to take notice because it's pretty rare. There are many beautiful women in the Bible Mentioned many times, and we could go down the line, starting from even Eve, Sarah, you know, Rebecca, Rachel, and just going down how beautiful they were, Esther, and going down. But uh, men are a little bit more rare when it's mentioned that a man is handsome or beautiful. That's the word in the Hebrew. In fact, there are more references to vegetation being beautiful than men being beautiful. So by my count... 
There are about seven men in the Bible that are mentioned as beautiful. Eight if you count babies, but I, let's not count babies. So around seven men. I'll say them really quickly in case you guys are nerds, which most of you are. Anyway, but um, it's Joseph, Saul, Jonathan, David, Absalom, uh, Adinajah, and Solomon. But whenever, uh, whenever the Bible mentions that a man is handsome, then you know that's something like noticeable. Oh, this man was actually really good looking. But not only that, for Saul, there is something quite special. Because whenever the Bible mentions a man is handsome, something happens after that usually. Like Joseph was mentioned as handsome in Genesis 39 and immediately Potiphar's wife hit on him and things like that. And so Saul is mentioned as handsome, but not only that, Saul's handsomeness is mentioned twice in this verse. And we know that whenever an adjective is mentioned more than once, it becomes a superlative. So to translate that maybe in our vernacular would be that uh, Saul wasn't just good looking. He was really, really ridiculously good looking. That's the translation. So it was raised a little bit to a high quality or superlative degree. Not only was he really, really ridiculously good-looking, he was a head taller than anyone else in Israel. Saul literally, physically checked off all the boxes. I heard when I was um, <clears throat> training to be a pastor, a lot of our young women in our church would have checklists of what they would want in a man before they would get married to him. And now that we're all a little bit older, we know that None of those checklists, those boxes have been checked. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, all you guys are all handsome to the second degree, I'm sure. But um, he was literally that guy. He was that guy that checked off all the boxes. He was rich, he was powerful, he was tall, and he was ridiculously good looking. You want a king, this is the backdrop. That's the backdrop of chapter 9, when we introduce or we are introduced to, to Saul. And so it looks like they're going to get what they asked for. And so we'll start with our first point. Now that we have established our backdrop, our first point is divine providence. In chapter 9, verses 3 to 27, the entirety of rest of the chapter, we're going to talk about divine providence. Divine providence is about the governance of God. When we say divine providence, we're talking about how much he cares for and directs all the things in the universe with his wisdom and love. The doctrine of divine providence is the assertion that God is in complete control over all things. Whether it's the universe as a whole, the physical world, the affairs of nations, even today in 2022, human destiny, human successes and failures, and the protection of, its, of his people, that is all under the umbrella of the doctrine of divine providence. But it's the latter portion of that statement I just mentioned that we'll see here, the protection of his people. It's through God's divine providence that God will now accomplish his will. In this section, we get to see a cutout of one scenario in someone's life, but we see how wonderfully and mysteriously the Lord is ruling and sustaining all his people. 
even even through what is seemingly one of the more mundane, commonplace, ordinary things in our daily lives. How common was this story? Well, Kish, who was Saul's father, lost some donkeys. And so he asks his son to go look for them. It's a normal, everyday event. Maybe your mom would ask you, like, where's our dog? Why don't you bring him back into the house? That kind of thing. It's not the stuff that you would necessarily create a docuseries called Making a King or something like that. But Saul takes a servant and he begins the search. And he goes through this search into the central hill country of Israel. And afterwards, he decides to give up because his search is fruitless. He can't find the donkeys. He, he's gone through all these places. He's ended up in this weirdo place, this dump, right? New Jersey, no, uh, but he's this weirdo place. And his servant urges Saul then to look for Samuel, look for this man of God. Now, if you're going to go to a man of God, you can't go empty-handed, and you can't just show up without anything in your hands. This is, this, is a, this is a culture. It's a custom. It's a good one. If you grew up in the Asian culture, you know this to be true. You don't just show up in someone's house empty-handed, but I believe this is kind of pervasive to a degree in all cultures. You don't just show up. Here I am. I'm going to eat your food and leave. You bring a little gift or something to that effect. And so you couldn't see the man of God without bringing something, but they had eaten all their food, so they couldn't give him food. And then it just so happens that the servant has a quarter shekel of silver. He's like, look, we got this. And so now they have this quarter shekel of silver, and they have something that's appropriate to give the man of God. And as they go up to the city where Samuel is, uh, they like young women would be coming out to draw water in that exact same time, and they told, they would tell him exactly where to find and how to find Samuel, and it just seems like a bunch of coincidences coming, going and overlapping each other. But of course, if you heard me preach before, you know that I've said many times that the word coincidence is probably the most unintelligent word to describe a phenomenon because there's no such thing as a coincidence. And we are made sure of this, though, just in case, just in case you thought maybe it was coincidental, we are made sure that it's not with this insertion into the narrative. And that insertion is in chapter 9, verses 15 to 17. And that reads, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, told him Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Now, this insertion, we are being let in on a secret. We are being let in on something that even though we think is mundane, it's ordinary, you just wake up, you ate your cereal, your dad's like, where are the donkeys? Like, I'll go look for the donkeys. And what's seemingly mundane and happenstance 
This insertion is telling us what we are witnessing is actually the doing of Yahweh. It's the Lord God working. And here is what one might listen to this and read this, and you might start to wonder and ask, then does God's divine providence, then does God's providence only operate in these major events and major figures of the Bible or in the salvation process like Saul, or does this kind of divine providence or this providential direction, does it also apply to me? Me, personally. I woke up today, and I showered, and I came here. Does that also apply to me? And I would say yes. In Proverbs 16, 9, it says, The heart of a man heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. It's God who establishes your steps. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 24, a man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? And so, this strange and fascinating providence is not just for the elite, but it encompasses each one of God's people. There are no coincidences in your life. And if you were to look back at your footsteps, you would be able to see that it was God's providential hand that has guided you thus far. If you are currently in a place where you can't see it, then perhaps you need to keep on looking for your donkeys. However, some would read this insertion and think that it is contradicting God in chapter 8. In chapter 8, we went over last week that God clearly seemed anti-monarchical. That means he was anti-monarchy, right? And here, it seems that he's pro-monarchy, if you read the language. And I went to a pretty liberal school, and one of my professors would point out how the Bible is full of contradictions, and they actually use this section to try and prove their point. And even as a seminary student, I thought that was horribly arrogant. You know, we consider ourselves to be highly intelligent and complex creatures. But when it comes to God, we can't stop for a moment to think that he might not be this robotic figure that thinks more simplistically than us. Not to mention that this document had been in circulation for thousands of years, and all of a sudden we think now, in our modern age, we've caught these contradictions, and all the stupid people in the past must have missed it. I think that was, that is, highly arrogant. But then to understand, so how do we understand it? It, seems, it does seem that in chapter 8, he was against it. In chapter 9, he's for it. But I think that is a little reductive. It's a little overly simplistic. But to help us look at this, maybe it'll be beneficial for us to take a step back and look at the narrative in the bigger picture. Take a step back. In chapter 8, there is a gathering or the assembly. And then from chapters 9 and chapter 10 up to 16, 
there's this action that takes place. And more specifically, when they're gathered, people of God are in chapter 8, and then the following passage that we've read today, there is the scattered people of God, meaning when they're gathered, there is something that is given to them. When they're scattered, you see that there's action happening. And this also happens in chapter 10, verse 17 to 27, which we'll go over next week. But in chapter 10, verse 17 to 27, there's the gathered. And then in chapters 11, there's the scattered. And then in chapters 12, there's the gathered. And then chapters 13 and 14, there's the scattered. So there is a gathering or assembly. And in that gathering or assembly, there is accusing. This is what you're doing something. This is what you're doing and that something is wrong. And then in the scattered section, whenever action is taking place, what do we see? We see mercy. We see mercy. I mean, you could argue that both the gathered and scattered times are times of mercy. Then when we look at the scattered times, then we see that it's actually times of deliverance. You see, although God saw right through Israel's idolatrous desire for a king in chapter 8, it did not stop him from the providential dispensation of grace. They cry out for a king in chapter 8, and in chapters 9 and the beginning of chapter 10, he hears their cry. And in other words, and we're going to go over a term we went over last week, in other words, Israel's intrinsic stupidity does not cancel out God's mercy. Hearing this, we also must not trivialize Israel's sin, but we dare not minimize God's compassion. And that's why chapter 9, verse 15 to 17, is the key to seeing all of today's passage. It's also there for us to see God's mercy in light of chapter 8. Even though foolish, even though stubborn, they are objects of God's mercy time and time again. Again, I'll reiterate the point is not to gloss over sin. God vehemently hates sin, but as a child of God, we are flabbergasted at the great patience of God. Our sins do not dry up the fountain of His mercies, and He refuses to let us go. In Psalm 103, the psalmist writes from verse 10, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. And that's what he says to Samuel. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. This divine providence is a compassion, compassionate providence. And God is a God that is moved by pity for his people. It's also a warm providence that lifts up those that are in need. So Samuel tells Saul that the donkeys have been found and that a great many honors would come to him and his family. And Saul didn't feel worthy of the honor. He was a nobody in a sense. His tribe had been decimated in Judges chapter 20. 
Or maybe he said it because that's just good manners. You know, it's like, oh, you're great things are going to happen. Oh, no, no. And inside you're like, yes, you know, could have been good manners. But in either case, Saul becomes the honored guest. He's given the leg of the meat. And we know that the leg of the meat is the portion given to the priests. So he has been given this priestly honor. The next point is assurance. Divine assurance. That's from chapters 10, verses 1 through 9. Samuel had sent the servant ahead and anoint Saul. So you can imagine, the servant is just an earshot away and then you see that Samuel is anointing Saul. And he's going, to, he's going to say that there are going to be signs to verify this. This is going to be a very unusual day. First, near Rachel's tomb on the border of Benjamin, Saul will meet two men who will tell him that Kish's donkeys have been found and that just as Saul, Saul guessed earlier, his father was worried about the persons, not the animals. Next, near the tree or the oak of Tabor, and that's somewhere between Benjamin on the way to Bethel, Saul will meet three men on their way to worship at Bethel and taking all the materials for the sacrifice, three young goats, three loaves of bread, a skin of wine, respectively, and then they'll inquire about Saul's welfare and then they'll give him two loaves of bread. And finally, when approaching Gibeah, he will encounter a group of prophets fresh from the high place, strumming their guitars, playing their pipes, dancing for God. In a sense, Yahweh's spirit will rush upon Saul and he will join in that prophesying. And indeed, he will be turned into another man. Now, what's being told here aren't just general fortunes that you can find in a cookie or from a fortune teller. You know, fortune tellers are the worst. Uh, they tell you that if you go, let's say you're a parent, um, and I've experienced people telling me about this, they tell you that in regards to your children, like the first one is strong, you don't have to worry about them, but the second one needs your help, but the second one's also talented, they just need the breakthrough. And you listen to stuff like this, like, well, that's like for every family that has ever existed in this world. And it's, it's nothing. It's just generalities that you want to hear. But this is different from that. If you look at it, it's precisely because these events are so uncanny that they're so significant. There are detailed messages, uh, signs, particular messages, precise locations, donkeys are found, there are specific details like you, and locations like you have to go to the Oak of Tabor, one having three young goats, one with three loaves of bread, one with one skin of wine, and the bread guy gives you two loaves. This is beyond someone's guessing or even if you had the keenest of senses or human foresight. These details can only come from God. And therefore, what is being told to Saul as these signs will signify to you that you have God's authorization for kingship. The signs are meant to assure. And Saul is being assured that he will receive the power of the Spirit and the direction of God through the word of Samuel. So the power of the Spirit in verses 6 and 7 and the word of God in, through Samuel in verse 8. 
You see, both are necessary to perform the function of king. Saul the king needs God's power, and Saul the king needs to submit to God's word. The spirit and the word must never be separated. And it is because of our sinful desire that we want to enjoy God's power and presence while trampling on his word and denying his lordship. That's so what Jesus says in Luke 6:46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? We are the kind of people that want Philippians 4:13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me while not obeying Christ. That's the same as rejecting Christ. We crave the Spirit's power, but when it comes to obeying God's word, it's really difficult to even lift a finger. Perhaps that's why it's so easy to fall into the temptation of the devil and not think that once we eat the forbidden fruit, we will not die. Next point is equipping, divine equipping. And that's from verses 10 to 13. Now, there isn't much detail on the fulfillment on the first two signs, but there is a particular emphasis on the third one. And perhaps it was to underscore how God had prepared him for the task ahead. You know, imagine the stir that this would have caused. You're back at home. This shy boy starts to proclaim and prophesy just like one of the prophets. And that's why people will say, what has come over the son of Kish? It's all also among the prophets. It's so memorable that it becomes a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? And this is a proverb probably similar to the American one that we have, will wonders never cease. It's a marvel that seems to be beyond explanation. And that's the point, isn't it? God frequently defies human expectation. Not only that, he takes what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and he takes the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Because one man asks this, who is his father? And you would understand, they all knew who Saul was. They are, he was from that area. Who is his father is to point out, no matter how great Kish was, Saul could not do this on his own. When someone asks who the father is, they're asking, who's the source? Kish couldn't have been the source of Saul's prophesying. It's God who inspires prophets, and he is able to grip Saul and do to him the same. No matter how unlikely in men's eyes, God is able to make him able. Now, when we even look at our own lives, we can say, who is this guy? Who is this person that's talking to me about Jesus Christ? Or who is this person who claims to be a Christian in this place, in our time? I know you. I grew up with you. You're, you're no holy man or holy woman. But who is able to give the servant of God power? It's not innate. It's God. It's God who gives man his breath. It's God who gives man his words. It's God who strengthens his people to do his work. No matter how unlikely it is when people look at you, it's God who is able to make you able. 
And last point is concealment. And that's from verses 14 to 16. And this section closes with a conversation with Saul's uncle. Where have you been? Looking for the donkeys. We couldn't find them, so we went to Samuel. What did he tell you? Uh, he just told us that the donkeys were found. That's it. That's the end of the conversation. And it says, but about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Saul's uncle is kept in the dark. But if you think carefully about this whole section, so is everyone else. Everyone else doesn't know what's going on either. Maybe his uncle was suspicious. If you're anointed with oil, that fragrance would have stayed with you for days, right? But his uncle doesn't press him on the matter. And isn't that the truth, though? Isn't that the truth? All these wonders could be happening. But the fact of the matter is, you could still be kept in the dark. Maybe you believe in all the conspiracies that are around you in this world, but if you don't know what they are, you are the one kept in the dark. You want to be the one in the know, but you're just not smart enough or powerful enough or rich enough perhaps, that you think. And you think that once you become one of those things, then you will know. Once you become one of those things, you will be in the know. But that's not how the passage starts. The passage starts by showing us that Saul had all these things and he wasn't in the know. He didn't know these things until it was given to him. Because we think that once we have certain things, once I have enough money, I can do this. Once I have enough power, I can do this. Once I have enough influence, I can do this. Once I'm big or strong enough, I can do these things. But that's not how it works. If anything, people today should know that social media has revealed to us, and these platforms on social media have revealed to us, that those that seem the happiest on these platforms tend to be the most insecure and unhappy and depressed. In fact, showing many happy things on your stories or posts have almost little to nothing to do with you actually being happy. It has more to do with envy, but we have gone over that. The ones that are in the know, however, the ones that are in the know have their eyes open. And what is the difference? What is the difference between the ones that are in the know and the ones that are not? The ones that have their eyes open and the ones that have not had their eyes open. And it's showing us here, they are first called. They are first called. In 1 Corinthians, it says, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
So now, those that have been called into the presence of God, those that have been called into His glorious will, those that have been called under His divine providence, what, has, what was concealed before now has been revealed. And it wasn't because we were intrinsically smart or strong or powerful. It is because of God's sheer mercy. And that's why if we have a boast now, it is not in our innate abilities. It is in God who strengthens us to obey his word. And he gives us the joy and promise of living for him for all eternity. Those that are called know this word, or you know, we should know this word, and we'll be taught this word, and the word is sanctification. God is the one that will continue to equip us, strengthen us, assure us, and reveal to us because God is merciful. And he's going to continue to make us more like him. And this is why I love the gathering of the saints. I love Sunday worship because that's when the saints are gathered to learn about God, to listen to his word, to sing his word, to pray his word. And therefore, by the power of the Spirit, we are slowly being changed to be more like Him, to be more like our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. This is a glorious thing. Um, if there is one thing from the conference that I could share with you that I personally was convicted by was that um, the Sunday service, it could be longer. <laughs> I mean, not, not this actual Sunday service, but... Our gathering times could be longer. And this is something that I had dreamed about for years. So if you know me, then you know that I just don't want to end it from 10 to 11.30. That's not my goal. I want a whole day of learning about God, spending time in His presence with His saints, uh, Sunday school, teaching our children as well, children's school, and even evening worship. Maybe we'll get there someday soon, but this is something that I want to build up to. Imagine just setting aside a whole day to learn about God, to rest in God, to be assured, to be equipped, and to, to have that revelation given to us, and not just for an hour and a half, but the whole day. And so six days we can really be empowered to work for God. And so this is something that I have been convicted continually about, and especially in this past conference, this, that's what also stood out to me. But this is something that God is doing in us and in our church. Through his word and through the power of his spirit, he's continually changing us. Our affections are changing. Our desires are changing. Once we desire just power, but now we know that we love God. And the things that he has shown us in his word are great and good and glorious things. We want to follow what God says. We want to understand what God says about all the things that he teaches us. Not just the things that we want, but no matter what it is. Even sex or power or money, whatever the Bible teaches us, we want, we love, and we want to follow. And it, we are assured by the Holy Spirit that we will be able to follow these things. And the church is a shining example of how God works anoints, justifies, and sanctifies for his glory. And so this is what I look forward to on a week-by-week, daily also process in all of our lives and in this church's life as he sanctifies us to be his glorious
and beautiful and unblemished bride. Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us your word, for speaking to us and revealing to us your beauty, your majesty, your glory. And now as we listen to it, we want to be changed by it. We ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us, that we would not leave here the same, but that we would be transformed to be more like you, to love you, to love your word, to love to obey you and follow you, to have you not just as Savior, but as Lord in our lives, all the days of our lives, for all eternity. Looking forward to the day you come back and you consummate your bride. And so we thank you, God, for this promise that we have been given, assured to us in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus, assured to us with the down payment of the Holy Spirit given to each and every one of those you have called. Let's take this time to pray, and let's lift up our hearts to God as we heard in the beginning of our service. This is what we do here. We lift up our hearts to God so that he would transform it and make it more like him, make it more like Jesus. Let's ask God to do a transforming work in our lives. Let's pray.